Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzstraber. On today's show, make America boom again. Should we do that? I'm not talking about the election. I'm talking about supersonic flight. Since the 1970s, supersonic flight has been banned as the FAA made that decision back in 1973. Maybe they had good reason back then. The planes were not exactly high tech, but it's 2016 and maybe some things have changed and maybe the FAA should revisit its ban on supersonic flight so that we can travel faster. Joining me to discuss this is Eli Dorado, research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Eli, thanks for joining the show. Great to be here with you. Uh, so we are recording this on election day. This will not be released on election day. So your um, cleverly named paper is not going is not an effort to sway voters one way or the other. <laughs> we are no. I'm pretty sure the not. candidates have not spoken out about supersonic flight. This is not exactly an election deciding issue, but uh, maybe for those of you who travel a lot, it could be. Um, but Eli, tell us uh, first. How has supersonic flight changed? I mean, let's paint a picture of what it looked like back in the day. You know, the Concorde might come to mind for listeners who are old enough to remember. Sure. Yeah, the Concorde uh, was was basically the only uh, commercial supersonic plane that ever was in service for for an extended period of time. There was a a Soviet one that uh, that that briefly operated and turned out to be unsafe, and they <laughs> they, they pulled it out of uh, out of service. Um, and then, and then there was a, a, there were plans for an American made, uh, Concorde, uh, in started beginning in the sixties. This was, <clears throat> this was one of, uh, John F. Kennedy's ideas. He, he asked the FAA to like come up with ideas to really improve aviation. And, and he sort of insisted that, that we do a Mach three, 300 passenger, uh, monster plane, um, which uh, just never worked. Uh, never, never really got very far, and it was canceled by 1971. So really, the Concorde is it. It was in service from uh, 1976 to about 2000, uh, 2000, I think. Um, no, 2003 maybe. So even though the the FAA had banned flights over land in the U.S., the Concorde was allowed to operate because it would only go as far as New York City or D.C. or it didn't really go inland. Yeah, yeah, it would only it only flew supersonic over the ocean. Oh, so it, o- okay. only over the Atlantic Ocean, in fact, because it didn't have enough fuel to cross the Pacific. <laughs> okay, um, and and what are we talking about in terms of the time saved? So today, let's say. Maybe back then it was the same. Your average non-supersonic flight to Europe is like seven hours. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? What did oh, the- it would do like three and a half. So f- half, half yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so right now jets, I mean, subsonic jets are flying, um, you know, Mach 0.85 and, and the Concorde would fly up to Mach 2. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's, it's more than twice as fast as a... As a uh, subsonic jet. And who was using this? I mean, it, most people probably never interacted with the Concorde. I mean, it was, I'm guessing it was expensive. It was crazy expensive. So <laughs> so the Concorde, uh, you know, was, um, it just guzzled fuel. I mean, they, they used they used afterburners uh, to um, to get up to the, up to the speeds that, that we're talking about. Uh, and that's, you're literally dumping fuel uh, at, in the back of the engine, sort of as as you're as you're flying. So th- this is like incredibly, incredibly fuel efficient. Uh, in order to get an efficient supersonic jet, you would need to be able to do it without afterburners, uh, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, but but yeah, it was just it, it was incredibly expensive. It was like associated with um, just you know very lavish, uh, rich people lifestyle. Sometimes uh, people who were traveling. Um, 
you know, business or, or, or first class, um, to, to in, in front, you know, between New York and London, let's say on British Airways, sometimes you'd get upgraded to the Concorde if you wanted to, like, because they, they were always trying to fill out the cabin because not enough people no. were willing to pay the, you know, $20,000 that it was round trip to, to, to go to, um, to go to London. So to go really fast. So, you know, they would, uh, they would have to give people upgrades uh, to the Concorde. So. so you talked about how it was heavy. Uh, it guzzled a lot of fuel, which added to the cost. Was it also subsidy reliant? Uh, the only reason this was built and ever used was because government pumped money into it? Yeah. So this was a, a project of the, of the British and French government. And a lot of it was political reasons. Like the, the UK was trying to like play nice with, with France because they wanted to be part of the European common market. Ah, uh, and for, so, look at that. I mean, we're talking about Brexit over yeah, the summer. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is now 40 years ago when they were trying to join the European yeah, Union. Yeah, yeah, or part of it, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, you know, they that was part of it. There was all kinds of, uh, I mean, literally it was designed by by committee, by French and, and British committee. Um, and they they had to have, like, come to an agreement on whether it was going to be, you know, what parts of it were going to be manufactured in France versus in the UK and all this stuff. So, so yeah, it was, it was very much a, from the beginning, a government project and a, a sort of a national greatness project. Similar, you know, in the US, we had the exact same thing going on with, with our uh, supersonic jet that we wanted to build. It was not really, uh, there was no good economics for, for doing that. Um, it was just sort of, you know, this is a project that we could do as a, you know, as a, as a country. Yeah. And it's no shock that I guess someone like JFK might've been a fan because, you know, he was, he wanted us to go to the moon, not because we were going to right. get rich off of it because it was a big deal politically, uh, the backdrop of the cold war, trying to display your technological superiority was in and of itself a value that politicians saw, even if the technology itself wasn't particularly useful. I mean, yes, you cut the flight time in half, but think about how many Americans either needed that or could afford that. Not so much. So we talked about why it didn't why it didn't take off back then, right? We had it was just guzzled fuel, heavy, reliant on subsidies, not particularly in high demand. But four decades have passed, right? We're now in 2016. We we see technological marvels everywhere we look, yet flights haven't changed that much. I mean, yes, you now have a little screen with some TV, but when you talk about flying to Europe, the experience is largely the same. And are we ready for a technological leap here? Eli, what has changed since all of these problems we outlined? Is the current landscape for supersonic flight different? Yeah, I think that there's there's three things, three big technological changes that have happened. So one is just that engines have gotten much more efficient. So um, so basically, uh, using sort of an off the shelf jet engine core that is is in production today, you can you know you'd have to replace the exterior because you would want a lower bypass. But basically, using an off the shelf engine core, you can get to super cruise you can get to you'd be able to cruise at Mach 2 or 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 maybe even faster um without without using afterburners without you know uh that very wasteful um fuel maneuver um the another thing that's really changed is is materials so uh carbon fiber now is basically a commodity 
uh, and it's it's lighter and stronger than than uh, what's been used before. Uh, yeah, you see that. Aluminum. Yeah, you see that with some bicycles these days. Right. You pick up a bicycle and it weighs literally like basically nothing. Not not literally. <laughs> no. Okay, but not basically literally, nothing. But, yeah, yeah, but close. But it's it's. I mean, yeah. like you can do something that's very very rigid, very strong, and also very 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 lightweight. Um, and that and, will cut down on fuel. And that that's that's exactly right. So you you you, you cut down a. a um, massively on the amount of fuel that you need and, and the amount of um the just the, yeah the amount of uh the, which ultimately translates into the cost of of the ticket so why did we need a ban in the first place i mean if we talk about how crappy the technology was and how useless it was why was there a ban on this in the 1970s and then obviously i'm going to ask about the current regulatory challenges but just first of all why a ban on something that doesn't even work and no one wants it <laughs> so um so the ban is, uh, you know, essentially a, a noise regulation, right? So uh, as you know, uh, when a plane fly, flies faster than the uh, speed of sound, it displaces air in such a way as to create a sonic boom that is ah. observed on the ground. All, all along the flight path of the airplane, it's, you're, you're, people along the ground are going to hear a, uh, a, a loud boom. And... Uh, you know, in the in the 1960s, this was seen as you know maybe not that big of a problem. Um, the FAA actually did six months of tests over Oklahoma City, where they uh, subjected the residents there to eight sonic booms a day, uh, pretty pretty loud ones. Um, turns out that the people, that, you know, they they were they they kind of like were willing to take it at first to you know be good citizens and and have the experiment done on them. Yeah, because there was still that whole air about like technological advancement, yeah. and maybe there was some patriotism there. Like we yeah. are participating in right. something that will make us cooler than Russia. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. So 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 they did that, and it turned out that uh, after a while, the citizens started to revolt, and and, <laughs> and, and and the program had to that that particular experiment had to be canceled. And then, you know, as I said, uh, you know, the FAA was really gung ho on supersonic during this this time because they were they were in charge of the of the American uh, SST. So right. so they were doing everything they could to like show that it could be done over land. In 1971, the SST was canceled, and so um, and then in 1972, there was a uh, Congress passed a bill just doing you know just saying a lot of different. Uh, a lot of noise abatement provisions, and one of those was that the FAA was supposed to set a sonic boom. Do something about sonic boom, right? It didn't say it didn't say exactly what to do, but um, in in consultation with the EPA, just do do something about you know the level of boom. And so the FAA, you know, their project was dead. the The SST was dead, and so um, they made the decision to just completely ban supersonic travel over land. So not not like setting a maximum boom noise or saying you couldn't make a boom which actually would allow you to go Mach 1.1 or so 1.15 maybe um the, the the boom you know wouldn't be experienced on the ground um it was it was just a complete like speed limit instead of a noise standard so have the regulations at all changed in the past 43 years since this ban and if not what are you advocating so no they haven't that that particular regulation hasn't changed uh since 1973, uh, and and what uh, my co-author Sam Hammond and I are advocating in our uh, in our new paper is uh, for the FAA to set a uh, instead of saying no 
you cannot go the faster than this speed, say you cannot make a boom louder than this amount, right? That, that is felt on the ground. So, um, so you know, it's, it's up to uh, to the would be up to the agency and and with input from others uh, on what exactly that level is. You know, we have our ideas of what that should be, um, but um, but basically, what we're saying is make a noise standard that would allow you know some boom uh, o- over land, and that would I think really kickstart um, a lot of commercially viable uh, supersonic uh, development. So in the, in the in the most reasonable sense, you're saying FAA allow some boom, not full boom. All right, so no one not, to get too not, scared. Not not the level of the Concorde, right? No, yeah. So the Concorde had a boom of about 105 decibels, the a nominal boom of 105 decibels, and, and of course, if if you know, given certain maneuvers, you could get it up to 135. It's called and that would be very boom. disruptive. That to... would be extremely disruptive. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but but the nominal boom was was 105, which is still like pretty high. I mean, it's 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 loud, um, and so what we've been saying is, well, let's say we could do it for uh, about a hundred times softer, right? And so so remember, decibels are, are are logarithmic scale, so that would be something like 85 decibels as the as the absolute maximum that you would be allowed to make, um, and that's you know that's comparable to the level of noise that we already tolerate in society in terms of, you know, a motorcycle going down the street or a truck driving by your house or, you know, your, even your kitchen blender is in the, in the eighties in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the amount of decibels it produces. Oh, so that's interesting to note that decibels. So 85 is significantly lower than 105. Don't, don't think of it like temperature. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. I mean, it's a hundred times less sound pressure. Okay. Wow. All right. So that's a lot less. Um, so could the industry thrive under the limit that you have proposed? I mean, let's talk about some of the problems that used to plague the industry. Yes. You might be right that the metal is getting uh, lighter and that will lead to less fuel use and that maybe this is a viable technology. People will actually be able to afford it. What about demand? Do people give a crap about this? I mean, it's not like I, I joked earlier, this is not an issue that people would vote for a candidate over Yeah. other than you. And I, and I like you a lot and I take your opinion seriously. Yeah. Who else cares about this? Um, so I think that the, the community that's been wanting to do this the longest is the, is, uh, the business jet manufacturers. And they're, they're the ones that, you know, they, they've been saying that they want to do this. There's demand for it. Hundreds of planes could be sold, you know, um, for, for relatively small jets. Um, and those are, those are actually really good to start on because the, the boom is a function of the amount of displacement that you, of air displacement that you, that you make when, as you travel. And so a small plane is going to necessarily make a smaller boom than a, than a large plane. And so, so it's a very natural place to start. Um, and so, so yeah, there's, there's definitely demand for that. Um, but I've, you know, I've also, uh, become aware in the last several months of a, you know, startup in, in Colorado that, um, that wants to build an airliner. Uh, and they're, they're talking about a, uh, 40 passenger airliner and actually, uh, the, the company's name is boom and they're unveiling <laughs> their, um, their prototype, uh, uh, next week. Um, 
And so, so, so clearly there is some demand. There are people who want the FAA to make the change, but you could argue that the biggest hurdle is not going to be economics. It's going to be NIMBYism, not in my backyard, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole reason there is this ban in the first place is because they had a little experiment in Oklahoma yeah. and eventually people got pissed. Then they shut down the yeah, program yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they banned the noise. So, so it's probably not unfair to say that the biggest hurdle is going to be just convincing people who have decided to live near airports or an airport was built there after they'd already lived there, right? There's a difference in that fact pattern. And you guys also did a report, in addition to Make America Boom Again on the Supersonic, you guys have been looking at airport noise complaints. And there are some fascinating and absolutely hilarious findings. So can you talk about a, a little bit about the way that we look at airport noise complaints, how you might hear a number on the news, like 60,000 complaints in one year, holy shit, but it's not necessarily the full story. So give us a little bit of that because the two issues are clearly <laughs> directly related. Um, yeah, so so we, uh, with uh, uh, Raymond Russell, I, uh, I wrote a, a short paper um, looking at sort of the empirical distribution of uh, airport noise complaints. So... What we found is, uh, for example, here at Reagan, which is the airport closest to us right now, uh, in 2015, there were 8,000 and something uh, total complaints. Uh, 6,500 of them were from one individual, and another (laughs) 300 of them were from that individual's spouse. Um, So two people in the same uh, same house uh, in in, in the Fox Hall, Georgetown-ish neighborhood. So not that close to the neighbor to the airport anyway. Um, yeah, for you DC or non DC residents, we're talking about the, the airports near Alexandria, Virginia, which is yeah. south of the, the heart of Washington DC. Yeah. Georgetown is on the western portion yeah. of DC, no, closest to Virginia. So we're talking about a, like a thirty minute drive away from the area. About uh, I don't I don't think it's that far, but but, <laughs> it's, but it's like a good you know four miles away from the airport, okay. you know, and I live like two miles away, you know, from the airport, you know, as the crow flies, and uh, you know, it seems seems okay, you know, <laughs> I'm 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 not right under a flight pattern, right, uh, and so on, and th- and there have been changes in in the routes, um, in the last uh, in the last couple of years to as as the FAA has implemented a, a better uh, air traffic management system, um, but. But yeah, so so they're they're not not particularly close um, to the to the airport, and and they're responsible for you know close to eighty percent of the complaints. And I have this right; it's sixty eight hundred complaints from one household in one year. Yes. How is that even? Listeners, just think about how if you even wanted to do something like that, like if you set out to get that number of complaints, you're talking multiple complaints per day. Yeah, I think like on an average nineteen a day. That's kind of um, crazy. So, so, um, uh, so yeah. So somebody, you know, sitting down and and every you know forty minutes or so, they're uh, during their waking hours, they're they're uh, <laughs> <coughs> sitting down in front of a computer or whatever and submitting a com- com- detailed complaint, like saying, you know, this was the noise that I heard and and so on. Um, so it's, it, I mean, it's basically a full time job. Yeah. Uh, that someone someone is taking it upon themselves. So we might be dealing with actually crazy people, but the problem is, and, and someone pointed this out to me recently after they heard about your report, they said, on the news, the reporter might just get the total number of complaints in a year and be like, there were 8,000 complaints in a year, which sounds like a lot. But when are they actually, are, is the FAA going to recognize that these complaints are mostly from people who 
might not even live near the airport. Right. They might be a little crazy. I mean, how do you see, how has the response been to your paper and your findings about noise complaints? And do you think that the reception spells a good future for supersonic flight or not? So I, you know, I think it's gotten a, it's gotten a lot of attention, which, you know, I'm gratified to, to see. Um, you know, I think most people, they look at the data and they and they kind of see it our way and they're just like, well, this is this is a little little nuts and uh, <laughs> we shouldn't, you know, we need to be careful not to to over overweight um, the these people's opinion. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, a lot of people uh, there there have been a small number of. People who have repeatedly complained, let's put it that way, about our paper. Yeah, so it's uh, almost like the people who complain about <laughs> yeah. noise at the airport might also be complaining about your paper uh, about yes. noise at the airport. Repeatedly and vociferously. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, on one hand, the point is, you know, it's been raised that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of there, there is a silent uh, majority that isn't complaining, but they also, you know, feel the same way. Uh, that's, okay. that's one, that's one view that I've heard. Uh, another is, you know, that, um, it, it, you know, it really is bad, right? Like, you know, you could, you could, um, you, you need to hear how loud it is. It's, it's, you know, right, it's really so it's still insane. the so, NIMBY argument, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And that's going to be a challenge, clearly. I mean, to close out the show, do you have any sense of when Americans might be seeing developments in this space, when we might see testing, uh, companies really starting to hit the ground? I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? Are there efforts to legislatively make this fix? Uh, would the next FAA be looking at this? I mean, just kind of give us a sense of where the future is going. Sure. So um, so as I said, I think uh, uh, Boom uh, in, out in Colorado will be unveiling their subscale prototype next week. And they, they plan to do testing with that uh, at the end of next year, so about 12 months from now. They need a regulatory change to do the testing, or they can do that? No, anyway? they, can do, they can do the testing okay. um, with, uh, in cooperation with the Air Force or something okay. like that. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, so they'll, be able to do, they'll be able to do that. Um, again, they're targeting primarily the transoceanic market, just like the Concorde did. Um, in terms of the... Uh, so, and then, you know, when, when will that come to market? You know, if it does, um, I'm thinking, you know, within five, five to eight years, something like that, okay. that, that kind of time range that you'll be able to hopefully take a transoceanic flight, you know, faster than uh, faster than the speed of sound. Um, in terms of the overland ban, uh, you know, I think really this is only going to the FAA has said that they were thinking about doing this as far back as 2011, um, but then it's been zero public facing work on it since then. So I think really this is going to happen only if Congress says something. So, uh, you know, what I'm hoping is that we'll see some legislation in the next year, either part as part of the FAA reauthorization that has to happen by uh, the end of September next year, or maybe some standalone legislation. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's really interesting because uh, the FAA reauthorization is obviously an opportunity for a lot of things, uh, drones, yes. flight sharing, things we've talked about on the show before, and now yet another uh, and, and thing. The, and that's the only way that innovation really happens uh, with the FAA, right? The FAA is, is a safety agency, safety first, safety, safety always. Right. Um, and so they don't like change. They don't like uh, a lot of, you know, too much innovation. Um, right. And so, uh, 
so it really, it really is up to Congress to sort of put the pressure on the agency and actually just have mandates to to do things as they did with drones, right? They, yeah. they set a deadline for when you, they had to adopt commercial well, drones. Just imagine if those folks who are able to call about airport noise every day, multiple times a day, redirected their efforts to uh, <laughs> telling people to legalize supersonic flight. That'd be an interesting thing. But uh, we'll certainly be looking out for how this develops. And uh, we'll definitely have Eli back on the show to update us as needed. Eli, thanks so much. Research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Yeah, thanks so much, Evan. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Feel free to pitch topics and guests. Find this podcast in the iTunes store. Please, please, please leave us a review uh, because it will help others find the show and we like getting your feedback. Thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.